Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Last week, I began a three-part series, sort of, on the last week of Jesus' life, not, not in great detail. Just began to take a quick look at some of the familiar events from just before what we, uh, what we call the triumphal entry up to just before his arrest. And the takeaway of that message, which I encourage you to listen to, again, it wasn't a very long one, but the takeaway, the main one I wanted you to see, is that Jesus on the very doorstep of his most trying ordeal, uh, right before he went to the cross, during this week, even though he knew, this didn't, it wasn't like, hey, I'm in Jerusalem for a week, and then what? I'm being arrested? What? I'm being sentenced to death? He knew exactly where he was heading. And yet, he essentially changed nothing about the way he lived his life during that last week. He continued to heal. He continued to teach. He continued to fellowship. Uh, he, uh, he kept the Passover. He continued to just be led by the Spirit of God. He didn't need to make any radical changes in order to prepare himself for death. Make things right before he died. Today, as I mentioned, is actually Palm Sunday. And normally a Palm Sunday message is a time to look and celebrate the triumphal entry and, and look at this moment when Jesus came riding into town uh, to shouts of Hosanna. And we'll look at that a little bit, but uh, kind of go in a different direction. Today I want to focus on the crucifixion. There's two reasons. One uh, is that next Sunday we celebrate the resurrection. And the other reason we're doing this today is we are not having a Good Friday service. We typically don't. There would be nothing wrong with that. And it might be something we want to uh, look at in the future. Uh, but all that to say, since last week was kind of the Palm Sunday message, I'm using Palm Sunday to give you my Good Friday message. Does that make sense? So, if, by the way, you want to attend a Good Friday service, I know uh, Prince of Peace is doing one on uh, Good Friday, and so is the Church of Christ. I don't know uh, really anything about what the Prince of Peace Lutheran uh, service is going to be like. They're typically a more liturgical, uh, but you can find out easy enough. I sure if, I'm sure if you call them or talk to one of your Lutheran friends. Pastor Ryan at the Church of Christ has told me that their service is open to anyone, everyone, uh, but it's not a traditional service service. It's more of a contemplative thing where they go from station to station. But if you're free on Friday and you want to check it out, uh, you're invited to go to, the, to go to that. Meanwhile, we're doing our Good Friday message today. And uh, when I say we're going to focus on the crucifixion, I don't mean that we're going to take a look at all the gruesome detail of the physical crucifixion. If you've never looked at that, it's a hard thing to look at. If you've never heard a message on this or a teaching on this, it's a hard message to hear. Uh, but it's out there. To, you can, you can uh, do a Google search on a medical view of the crucifixion and what the specific physical agony that Jesus endured during the crucifixion. Again, it's not pretty, but it is, it's nothing like the Renaissance paintings and the other pretty, you know, sensitive uh, displays or representations of the crucifixion. It's very, very ugly, and it's not fun, but it is ultimately, I believe, helpful uh, to learn about that because it begins to give you an idea, uh, just one measure of the love of God that he has for us, that Jesus would submit to such a gruesome death on our behalf. But 
What I want to talk about today is the very idea, the doctrine of why Jesus died. And uh, here's why. And this is one of the reasons I uh, urged you to invite uh, perhaps some unbelieving loved ones or family. Uh, maybe this is a message you can share with them. You know, we live in a world today that clearly has a warped view of many things, like morality. Um, it has a warped view of Christianity in general, but it also specifically has a warped view of Jesus Christ himself. It's interesting to me that as far as contemporary sources go, I mean contemporary to Jesus, uh, there's very little in the historical record about Jesus. Practically everything we know about Jesus, Jesus the man, comes from the Gospels and the New Testament writings. Now there are. There, there are uh, maybe a, a couple of references by Josephus and uh, at least some allusions by a few others, but it's not like his ministry, his earthly life was seized upon by contemporary historians, uh, historians of his time. And for one thing, it wasn't like they were printing a daily newspaper and had radio and TV broadcasts every day. Um, his fame certainly grew uh, when the church grew. Uh, and I don't really want to dwell on that. I only bring it up because in the confusion and the arguments and the vitriol, the whole conversation about religion versus atheism Practically no one argues that Jesus didn't exist. This is important. The by far, almost exclusively, again, from sources from that time, almost all the evidence of Jesus' life comes from the Bible. And yet, uh, it's, it's scholars, if, if they hear somebody arguing, well, Jesus may not have existed or probably didn't exist. Even most, the vast majority of atheist scholars will say, well, that's ridiculous. He, uh, most people agree that he did live and that he was crucified. That's where the agreement ends uh, for between atheists and Christians because they, they obviously don't believe in the resurrection. And we'll get to that next week. But uh, it's, more, it's more or less a given that he lived, that he died on a Roman cross. And... Uh, even unbelievers find him fascinating and worthy of attention. They find him admirable. They deem him worthy of imitation, but for the wrong reasons. I'm just going to give you a few uh, examples here. This is a small sample of the things that people say about Jesus, and I'll name some names. Uh, these are, might be kind of weird sources. Douglas Adams uh, was the author. Uh, he was a he wrote humorous works, most famously, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I don't know if anybody was a fan of those books. They're very funny, very silly. Um, but in the introduction to that book, he wrote, he writes this about Earth. The planet has, or rather had, a problem, which was this. Most of the people living on it were unhappy most of the time. And then, one Thursday... Nearly 2,000 years after one man had been nailed to a tree for saying how great it would be to be nice to people for a change, a girl suddenly realized what it was that had been going wrong all this time. I only quote that because of that one part there. This is, this is his view. Now, again, he's a humorist, but he's also an atheist. He was a pretty outspoken atheist. 
recognizes Jesus lived, and this is, he's just giving you a timeline. This is his clever way of saying this happened around 2000. Because it was 2,000 years after what? After a man was nailed to a tree for saying how nice it would be for everybody to be nice. How great it would be for people to be nice for a change. Because that's what Jesus was about, right? I watched a brief video clip of some kind of minister. <laughs> I won't go in. I don't know who this guy was. I didn't research him. I, just listened, I was listening to this, a series of uh, stuff in, uh, while I was driving. And this minister was saying, uh, I don't get it. He says, so many Christians say that their favorite verse, the most important verse, and certainly it's the most famous verse, John 3.16. Why do people focus so much on John 3.16? I only hope that it's because of the first six words. For God so loved the world. Because, because God does love the world. He loves you and me and everyone on earth. But unfortunately, these Christians who love John 3.16 don't love John 3.16 because God loves the world. They want to preach God, John 3.16 so they can tell you how you're going to hell. And I'm like, what? I don't know if I've ever heard anybody use John 3.16 to tell somebody they're going to hell. It's ridiculous. But whoever, this guy, whoever he was, he skipped over. It's almost like, well, if you go anything beyond for God so loved the world, then you're going to get into condemning people. Because what's the rest of it say? That whosoever believes. Oh, well, so because then you go. Uh, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So you're saying, uh-oh, so now you're saying if you don't believe, well, that's not love, that's hatred. No, it's not. It's not, it's not pounding people over with the idea that, that you're, certainly that you're delighted they're going to hell, or even that they're going to hell. It's that they can be rescued from hell. Get into a little more of that later. Finally, another famous theologian, Dee Snyder, lead singer of the gospel sensation twisted sister remember we're not gonna take it that was them right yeah yeah <laughs> De snyder uh, shocked people several several years ago by releasing a really cool rendition of amazing grace and some people started researching him and asking him they start digging in it's like wow he's got some pretty conservative values especially when it comes to family uh and so he did uh they, that people started identifying him as a Christian. Here's what he said about it. I was born and raised a Christian. I sang in the church choir until I was 19 years old. I still adhere to those Christian beliefs, but not in the Son of God, superior being way. Christ, to me, is like Martin Luther King and Gandhi and all the other great philosophical people. This is what's known in some circles as Christian atheism. And it's more widespread than you might think. Even if someone doesn't call themselves or identify themselves as a Christian atheist, the central idea is this. I am a Christian because I follow the teachings of Jesus. 
I emulate him to the best of my abilities. And even more, I don't do this because I expect it to be rewarded with heaven or because I'm afraid of hell. I do it because it's the right thing to do. This air of moral superiority is often expressed in language that is uh, unsuitable for recitation, especially in a church service. But there is plenty of it out there. If the death of Jesus is referred to at all, it's to point out that Jesus, in his own moral superiority, was so committed to justice, love, peace, tolerance, and so on, that he was willing to die for his beliefs. And the best way to represent the spirit of Christ and Christianity is to be similarly committed to those values and those ideas, even if it costs us our life. And what makes this so attractive to some people, of course, is that there is a kernel of truth in there. The problem is that it completely misses the point of the reason Christ died. He did not die a martyr's death, as a martyr to a cause. You've heard me say this a hundred times, and I still believe it that the resurrection is the event on which Christianity stands or falls. No resurrection, no Christianity. But, read this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes this, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Has this ever bothered anyone but me? Nothing but Jesus and his crucifixion? Nothing, nothing except Jesus and his death? What about, what about uh, his teachings? What about his miracles? What about his resurrection, Paul? Well, there are a couple things we can pull out of just these two verses that will help us understand it. One is that Paul wrote uh, that what he shared with them was Jesus and him crucified, which opens the possibility that what Paul shared with them was the life, ministry, and the death of Jesus. But still, it only specifically mentions his death. But also notice this. He qualifies this statement right at the beginning by saying, when I came to you. When I came to you, in the beginning. He's not saying, not at all is he saying, that there is nothing more to the Christian faith. That there is nothing more worth knowing. He's saying, uh, just considering where the Corinthians were when they met. When Paul encountered them, they needed to know about the crucifixion more than anything else. That nothing mattered until they understood Jesus and his death. So once again, why? Was Jesus nailed to a cross for being loving, peaceful, tolerant? Were his messages so radically opposed to the Roman way of life that they considered him a threat to the status quo? For that matter, who killed Jesus? Who was responsible? Was it the Romans or was it the Jewish leaders? You know, there's a very popular meme. It's sickening. Um, it, It distresses me when I see it. But it strongly implies that people were 
and are so in love with violence, money, and the right to judge others that they simply couldn't deal with someone who preached peace, generosity, and tolerance, so they killed him. Others maintain that the Jews, or more specifically the Jewish leaders, uh, felt threatened, felt that um, if Jesus were left alone, he would steal their power, steal their spotlight. And there's, a, there's an element of truth to that as well. But honestly, the Jews thought they were condemning a blasphemer and a heretic. It wasn't purely shallow. It wasn't just them protecting their power and their position. They thought they were doing God's will. So who killed him? What did Jesus himself say? John chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. Just as Jesus speaking, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and lay, my, lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. By the way, he's speaking about the Gentile world there. Verse 17, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Listen to this. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. He couldn't be much clearer there, right? Why do people have people over the years ever argued about who killed Jesus? Who's to blame? The Romans? The Jews? Who? Jesus said, nobody killed me. I lay, I'm laying my life down. This is all according to God's plan. It's happening on purpose. But, why? So, all right, so he did it on purpose. He laid down his life. Why did he have to? This is the central issue of what is called the doctrine of atonement. That, that, now, that word atonement has been challenged over the years because when, the old, when it's used in the Old Testament, it's used in specific ceremony, particularly on, on the Day of Atonement, uh, where uh, sacrifice was made, blood was poured out uh, as a covering for sin. The Day of Atonement in the Old Testament did not solve uh, the problem for, for the Israelites. It covered it. It simply it was them acknowledging year after year that... They're, they're, that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Something God made clear in the garden. I'll talk about that here in just a second. But it was a covering, not a cleansing. And when we talk about the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, we're not, talk about it. we're not talking about a covering, are we? We're talking about a solution to the problem. We're talking about the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. But that word atonement is probably the best word we have, best single word to refer to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And in fact, the actual uh, origin of the word, the English word atonement, is at-one-ment. It's talking about reconciliation and unity, that we are at one with God through Jesus Christ. Now listen, Jesus did teach perfectly. Everything he taught was true, and he did leave a perfect life. No greater man ever lived, and this is where we have to be careful because we absolutely should make it our aim to live according to his teachings, as long as they're not specifically... He taught while under the law. 
You understand the world of the Gospels was the, essentially the Old Testament world up until the resurrection. So his teachings were perfect under the law. And so if he's, if he's teaching about anything that has to do specifically with the, uh, the ceremonial law, that's not something we need to make it our aim to do. But his moral teachings were all good. His teachings about righteousness and about sin were all perfect. And as uh, painful as it sounds, many of the things he said and commanded since it was under the law, he taught these things to point out that we are fundamentally incapable of keeping those commandments. First of all, remember these things. He was never shy about calling sin, sin. Even to the people, the vulnerable people, people that he had just healed or rescued. I'm thinking about the paralytic at the pool, the woman caught in adultery. What did he say to them? Go and sin no more. More to the point is this. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Jesus again. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Skip down to verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, do you remember when Jesus said to his disciples, uh, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom? Remember what his disciples said? Who then can be saved? Is it even possible to imagine that no one who heard Jesus' words here thought or said the same thing? You're telling me I'm in danger of hell for calling somebody a fool? I've never been unfaithful to my spouse, and you're telling me I'm in danger of hell because I was tempted, and I've never acted on that temptation? Okay, so my eye or my hand causes me to sin. I can pluck out my eye. I can chop off my hand. What if it's my brain? What if it's what I'm thinking? This is what Jesus is getting at. It's not just about your behavior or my behavior. Something is wrong with us in our very being, at our very core, that we have to discipline ourselves. We have to make conscious decisions and choices not to sin because for some reason we want to. This is what happened. This is what occurred at the fall of mankind. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, who were not afflicted with this constant desire to sin, sinned nonetheless because they were tempted by the serpent. 
And somehow, because, well, here's the somehow, at that moment, where were you and I? Philosophically speaking, mysteriously speaking, scripturally speaking, we were in Adam. All of us came from him. And when Adam sinned, he took on the nature of death. This is all in Genesis. First three chapters. Here's one sin, so don't do this thing. Because the day you do it, the day you eat of this tree, you'll die. It says, actually, it says, dying, you shall die. He didn't keel over bodily and physically die at that moment. He lived 900 years total, 930, something like that, 960. Adam, how long did he live? 930, 960, one of those. Anyway, lived a long time. But he was dead, spiritually. He had just cut himself off from the author of life, and that's what happens. And all of his unborn children died in that moment as well. We inherit this thing called the sin nature. And that's what Jesus was talking about when he said these things. You think you're fine because you have never cheated on your spouse. But I'm telling you, the fact that you have to fight those temptations is indicative that something in you is broken because you weren't created with a desire to be unfaithful. You weren't created with hate in your heart or even anger toward your brother. You weren't created with the proclivity to even think he's a fool, let alone call him a fool. But the fact that you think that and speak these things says what? That there's silliness? That there's misbehavior in your heart? No, that there's murder in your heart. This nature, this sinfulness in our flesh presents us with opportunities and the proclivity to sin, and every one of us succumbs at some point. Or as Paul put it in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is bad news, because we were created to glorify and enjoy God forever. But our nature and our subsequent action makes both of these things impossible. We can't glorify God with sinful actions, and we can't enjoy his presence because we feel convicted by his presence. We don't have time to, uh, this morning to review it in detail, but this is what the whole message of the law when it was given to, to Moses was about. So much of it revolved around the idea that sin has consequences and there's a price to be paid. God said the soul that sins shall die. Paul wrote, the wages of sin is death. In Genesis, man tried to cover up his guilt, his sin, his sin consciousness with leaves that he sewed together. And God killed the animal, uh, animals and clothed them with animal skins to drive home this message that was stated in Hebrews. Without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sin. The whole sacrifice system is a bloody display of just how serious our sin is in the eyes of a holy God. And it had to be done over and over until the final sacrifice was made once and for all. Jesus did teach us how to live. And he did drive home forcefully the, the supremacy of love. Love for God. Love for one another. But he also knew that we couldn't do it. Couldn't do it like it had to be done in our brokenness. We were dead men walking because sin brings death. It's not a matter of learning more about how to live. 
We talked just a few minutes ago about who killed Jesus. How do we settle that matter? By looking at the words of Jesus. No one. I'm laying down my life. So, what did Jesus come to do? To teach? To model a way of living? What was his mission? Well, according to him, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 42, we read this last week. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is Jesus saying he came to do what? To give his life. His ministry for three, three and a half years was important, and it's still life-changing for us. But his supreme mission was to go to the cross for us. You see, our sin cuts us off from the life of God. It's eternal separation from our Creator. That's what sin invites. God is love, and God so loved the world but he's also just. His perfect justice means he cannot ignore our sin just because he loves us. He's not willing that we should perish, but he cannot, in his perfect justice, allow sin to go unjudged. And the judgment, the price, the wages of sin is death. That's the sentence that has been passed. So God the Father gave God the Son to mankind. Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man, willingly went to the cross and allowed our death sentence to be carried out on himself. He alone, he alone as A, a sinless man, and B, the creator of all, he alone was big enough great enough, enough to stand in for every one of us. He stood in the place of all mankind. Our sin, our guilt was imputed to him. And God's judgment on that sin and on that guilt was poured out on Jesus at the cross. This is the central message of the death of Jesus Christ of the atonement. So hear it again. Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. He ministered as a man empowered by the Holy, Holy Spirit, but his identity was God the Son. So he could balance the scales. He's still bigger in terms of greatness, power, uh, just uh, essence. He's greater than every uh, all men and women combined throughout history. He could stand in for everybody. So he's nailed to the cross and treated and judged by God as guilty of every sin you have ever done or committed in thought, word, or deed. The torture that he went through and the death that he died on the cross was God's judgment on your sin. We talked about us being in Adam when he sinned, we were in Christ when he was crucified. We died with him when he died, but only if. Hang on. 
This is what Paul was saying to the Corinthians when he said, when I came to you, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's saying that whatever you're doing, whatever you're reaching for, however it is you're trying to find God, serve God, please God, get right with God, understand this, it will never be enough. If you were remotely capable of doing anything to make yourself right with God, then Christ would not have needed to be crucified, would not have been given to die. But he did die. He was crucified for you because there was no other way. He's saying, this is what you need to know. Until we nail this down, nothing else matters. He's not saying nothing else ever matters. And we know this because he went back and he taught them some more. And he wrote them at least four letters, two of them which we have in our Bible. He continued to teach them other things, but he started there. Until we nail this down, you need to know that you are sinners. You were indeed born that way. And because of that, you will sin and have sinned and are cut off from God. You are dead because that's what sin does. It cuts you off from the author of life. The good news is, he already died that death for you. Your sin debt has been paid in full. This is the message of Jesus. What you need is not a teacher not a new government, not more willpower. What you need is a savior, a deliverer. This is why they shouted when Jesus came into Jerusalem. They didn't say, teach us. They said, save us. Hosanna, save now. They were crying out for the right thing, they just didn't quite realize what they needed saved from. What they were crying out, honestly, was save us now from the oppression of Rome. We are the people of God, so put us back in power. Deliver us from Rome. And Jesus is like, oh, I'll, I'll do the Hosanna thing. I'm going to save you. But I'm saving you from your true mortal enemy, which is your sin. Christ died for all. And we need to understand he did that. He didn't come. He didn't die on the cross just so he could tell us, you need to do better. You don't need to do better. You don't need to be better. You need to be made alive because what does sin do? Makes you dead. And this is exactly what God promises when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing less than a new life, a new birth. Christ died for all, but we only benefit from that sacrifice by actively, on purpose, believing and trusting in that sacrifice. That's what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He loves the whole world enough to die for the whole world. Who gets their sins forgiven? Who gets everlasting life? Those who believe. And when that happens, it's much more than a decision to live according to certain principles. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
We were born sinners. We were born with death in us because we all came from Adam. We all died in Adam. Jesus died that death for us on the cross. And if we are born again, born of God, we are in Christ, just as we were in Adam. In Christ, we have been crucified already. The judgment we so richly deserve has been poured out. It's been completed through him. If we believe, if we believe, if we confess him as our Lord and Savior. Praise and worship team, you can come on up here. I'm wrapping this up. We so, I mean, we really do violence to the New Testament and the gospel if we say that the main thing Jesus came to do was just to show us how to live. He came to literally give us life. Stand up with me. If you can. Or if you're inclined. The only way to live the life that you were created to live is to experience the new birth in Christ. Now that is a life, by the way, that lasts forever, even after we die. But I want you to understand, confessing your belief in Jesus Christ is not just about getting out of hell. That's a big deal. When we're talking about heaven and hell, we're talking about eternity. But I'm saying you were created by God for a particular life. And that life is meant to be connected to him. If you're disconnected from him, you are, again, you're, you're a walking dead man. No matter how much you might be enjoying about your life at this moment, it's not the life you were created to live until you have acknowledged Jesus Christ's claim on your life. If you desired to be saved from this wicked generation, from your own sin, and from hell. You must recognize that Jesus went to the cross for you. Not the world in some vague, nebulous sense, but for you and you and you and you and you and me. And we also, listen, this is a little bit heavy. I want to give you a, a quick heads up. Next week, there's more good news. All right? Because the very fact of the resurrection opens up a whole new realm of walking in the abundant life. All I want you to see today is that the price for your sin has already been paid if you will be humble enough to say, I, I did need you to do that, Jesus. I couldn't get there on my own. Or as Romans chapter 10 puts it this way, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We need a Savior. All of us need a Savior. I'm going to pray a quick prayer here. And when I'm done praying that out loud, if you desire to make that decision today, you want to publicly recognize, and I urge you to do it publicly. Most of us have at one time or another, uh, because it's, uh, it's, Christianity isn't a private religion. You're joining a family of God, and we want to rejoice with you. We, know, we want to know if you're making this decision for the first time, because we, just, we want to celebrate with you. 
But all I'm going to do when you come up here is lead you in a short prayer, a simple prayer. And if you're praying it from the heart, you will be saved. So I'm going to pray. When I'm done praying, they're going to start singing. As soon as they start singing, you come here. Don't waste another minute. And don't put it off another day. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow, right? Heavenly Father, thank you. Lord, you've given us so much. you revealed so much about yourself. But it is an awesome thing to come to the conclusion that without the terrible price that Jesus paid on the cross, salvation is inaccessible. It's impossible for us. And you could have left us to die, Lord. You could have left us dead. You could have left us to eternal damnation. But you loved us. And you still love us. And here's how you loved us, according to the word that you gave. Your only begotten son. Father, it's my prayer that if there's anyone in here, in the sound of my voice right now, who has not made that decision, who has not confessed saving belief, in you through the finished work of Jesus Christ, that you would convict them as only you can, that you would cause them to know that this is a decision that they need to make, and that you would grant them the humility and the boldness to make that decision today. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for loving us while we were yet sinners, but thank you for loving us so much that you don't leave us in that mess. You don't just say, okay, no hell for you. You give us a new birth, a new heart, a new life starting today so that we can, starting today, glorify you and enjoy you. Move in this place today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you come. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.